Industrialization of the Winnipeg River watershed in the 20th century and the devastating impacts on the Anishinaabe First Peoples of the region. An interview with Dr. Brittany Luby. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 71 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Nature's Past. Um, on this episode, we're going to be speaking with uh, Professor Brittany Luby uh, about her new book, Damned, The Politics of Loss and Survival in Anishinaabe Territory, uh, which was published by University of Manitoba Press. And I'm joined on this episode by our podcast assistant, Wendy Bim. Hey, Wendy. Hello. <laughs> so, Wendy, you've been working with me for the last several weeks on um, research and prep for this uh, episode. Uh, I wondered if you could tell listeners a little bit about what this book is about. So, Dam is a story written but from the perspective of an Anishinaabe descendant. Dr. Brittany Luby, who writes uh, about uh, her ancestral homeland in Lake of the Woods, um, she tells the story of how industrialization affected uh, the way of life and its connection to the water. The governments of Canada allowed the construction of dams down and upriver and allowed mills to be constructed uh, along the water between the dams. The town of Kenora then dumped uh, untold amounts of raw sewage in the water. And essentially, this is a story about how industrialization of this particular corner of Ontario and Canada absolutely destroyed the Indigenous way of life of the Anishinaabe people, who had sustained untold generations of these land, and really in a short period of time. So what did you like about this book, Wendy? The first thing that stands, that really stands out to, for me is Dr. Luby's research uh, that went into Damned, uh, her use of oral stories and uh, the way they were intersected with histori- historical sources, uh, as well as treaties and the various um, government uh, um, documentations, uh, as well as the internal correspondence from HEPCO was just the ability to locate this uh, um, all this information. And, uh, and I think that Dr. Luby succeeded in telling a story of the Anishinaabe peoples in the region and really completes a narrative based on this. On a personal level, she makes it clear how the Anishinaabe kept adapting to these changes of the water and their traditional lifestyle. They worked on the White Dog Falls Dam, and they helped build that access to the roads, all to stay in their homelands. But in the end, it wasn't enough, and it led to abandoning their home. It's a fascinating story, very well told and engaging. And I think in addition to the environmental changes and destruction that occur over the the period that's covered in the book, we also learn about the resiliency of the communities in Northwestern Ontario, how they adapted to those changes, 
and uh, what's happening now and into the future. So on this episode of the podcast, we had a chance to talk with Professor Luby, and we had a chance to talk with uh, Chief uh, Lorraine Kobanis, who's the chief of the Nisetchewan First Nation, uh, to learn a little bit more about the history of the environmental changes in this part of Ontario and what the future looks like uh, for Anishinaabe people uh, in northwestern Ontario. Hi, I'm Britt Luby. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Guelph. I'm a proud Treaty Number 3 woman, and my ancestral territory is Nisetchewan and Anishinaabe Nation. Very proud member of Treaty 3, up here way up in the bush. Good to be part of this, what we're going to be talking about today. Great. Well, we're really grateful to have you both here to um, share some knowledge and stories about the the history that's covered in in Brittany's book, Damned, The Politics of Loss and Survival in Anishinaabe Territory. The first thing I wanted to do was get a sense from both of you about the land and the waters of the Winnipeg River watershed and the Lake of the Woods area that, that make up the, the geography of the book. So uh, can you give a sense for listeners who maybe have never been to this part of, of Ontario, um, what this place is like, uh, what does it look like, what does it smell like? Um, give us a sense of the environment. It's my favorite place in the world. So the northern outlet of Lake of the Woods is about 180 kilometers east of the longitudinal center of what is currently known as Canada. And Lake of the Woods is just this huge body of fresh water. It's about 137 kilometers long. That's about 85 miles. And about 90 kilometers wide, which is about 56 miles. Um, Many tributaries feed into the Winnipeg River at the northern outlet. Rainy Lake flows into Lake of the Woods, which flows into the Winnipeg River, where my ancestral community is located. And I just want to emphasize, because many of these tributaries are feeding the Winnipeg River, there's a lot of flow here, just a huge quantity of fresh water. And water is life. So these waters are sustaining walleye, uh, northern pike, which others may know as jackfish, uh, bass, musky sturgeon, uh, monomen or wild rice, which is a complex carbohydrate that grows in the water. And I remember this one conversation I had with my, my father, and I was saying, Oh, geez, I couldn't imagine living here around the time of treaty. I would have been so cold in the winter. And uh, Dad said to me, Britt, look, look around, right? You have fresh water to, to drink. You have all these trees for shelter. There's fish in the river. You know, moose are attracted to minoman fields. They love to eat the lily pad roots. So, you know, there's, there's just this fullness of life uh, that was available. And um, I think to, to wrap up, just, you know, thinking about this, Water is life and all the water that's available here and that richness that that provided. Uh, The right to manage these waters is hotly contested and has been for many years. Lake of the Woods and International Boundary Water, to which three uh, national bodies lay claim. So the Anishinaabe Nation and then the settler colonial nations of Canada and the United States. Um, Chief, what do you think of when you think of home? Um, Well, I'm right smack dab in the middle of it. It is absolutely gorgeous, um, beautiful, um, and very welcoming. Um, we're surrounded, obviously, by, by water. A lot of our, our homes within the community are um, right on the, the shoreline. 
right? So we have, it's, a lot of times I think, you know, when you, you have the opportunity to just, you know, wake up every morning and look outside and see the true beauty of what you're, you know, what's there. But I look at it from where, from where my home is and the sad part of what I have to look at almost every day without taking into the, the beauty of what I'm actually, what's there is right across the river, right? Where the channels were blasted out um, back in the day, there is a high water mark that is just indicative in, in it's actually on the rocks, right? It's, it's right in the, the rock itself and there's an island there and you see it. It's a, and it's a constant reminder every day of, of the, um, you know, what our community has, has gone through. And, but it's also a reminder of how resilient our people are and have been. And when you see that rush of water continually moving, you see all the healing, right? And I associate that moving water with a lot of healing that's happened as a result of, you know, structures being put up, um, you know, all these other um, factors that have, you know, kind of made the water unhealthy and everything that's lived in it and really highlights kind of where we are at right now as a people. And yeah, so there's, there's always a good thing and then there's always, kind of where you're at today, but there's always a lot of hope when you see how the waters just keep going and it's just something that's never going to stop. If that explains it. It's, we're all I think- beautiful here in the, in the summer, cold as heck in the winter, right? And uh, so we're kind of coming through that now, but where we're situated is just, uh, wouldn't change it for nothing. Brittany, thinking about the history of the environmental change in this region, um, there's a period before the construction of the White Dog Falls Generating Station. Um, How were the lands and waters of the Anishinaabe in this region affected by colonialism and industrialization before the White Dog's Falls? And and how did Anishinaabe people adapt to those changes? Um, So at the time of treaty, going back to 1873, the Anishinaabeg were in a politically, a materially strong position. Food security allowed, um, you know, the Anishinaabe nation to support a really large population. And there's colonial correspondence. So surveyor Simon J. Dawson, for example, expressing some fear of the First Nations that this population could be threatening if they so desired. And you know, this nation was so politically and materially secure that they were able to, to reject a few offers from the crown to treat. And they refused to enter into a treaty without protection of their fisheries, which depend fundamentally on water. So there's water protection coded into this fisheries protection. So no recognition of fisheries, no treaty. Um, and I'm just going to read a passage from pages 23 to 25 uh, of the book. Not going to read a full two pages. Don't worry. I'm going to uh, skip uh, between choice lines uh, in those paragraphs. Chiefs and leaders set terms on which they would build a more permanent relationship. Elaborating on Anishinaabe refusals to enter treaty, Dawson noted that fishing rights were, quote, strongly insisted upon and had a great weight with the Indians, end quote. Mm -hmm. 
Chiefs and leaders refused to sign a treaty that required the surrender of their fisheries or challenged their relationship with water. Treaty number three, finally concluded in 1873, granted the Anishinaabe the protection that they sought. Commissioner Dawson recalled that Crown representatives promised that the Anishinaabe would, quote, forever have the use of their fisheries, end quote. End quote. Commissioners well understood that without such a guarantee, no agreement would have been reached. So I'm going to stop reading uh, out of the book, out of the book there, um, and reflect further on what's happening next. So, in the early years after the treaty, the North Shore Lake of the Woods was primarily a fur trading territory. Uh, before the the area, uh, the settler village was known as Kenora. It was noted. Uh, known as rat portage, rat mm-hmm. being a reference to the muskrat that fueled the fur trading industry there. And fur traders used the water quite heavily for transit, and they weren't actively modifying flow or compromising Anishinaabe use at this time. Conflicts over water can be linked more directly to the establishment of Norman Dam on Lake of the Woods in the 1890s. This dam was installed by the Kuwait Power Company. And the Norman Dam raised water levels on Lake of the Woods, which was functioning as a reservoir. And it's estimated that the Norman Dam raised levels on Lake of the Woods between one and two meters. And this would have a huge impact on food security and also the economic potential of First Nations in in Treaty Number 3. So in 1890, my many greats grandfather complained to the Indian agent at Kenora. So in 1890, and already we have this complaint coming from an Anishinaabe leader. And he said, quote, we reserved this land known as Sultana Island long before the treaty. And we had gardens on it long, long before the treaty of 1873. And it is only an island when water is high on the lake. Since the dam was built across the mouth of the river, it is higher and has killed all of our rice. And one thing that I find really fascinating about this uh, passage is the association between monomen or wild rice and water levels. So this has been known for for over a century that high water levels can impact monomen growth. But also we reserve this land known as Sultana Island and it's only an island when the water is high. This is important for us to understand the relationship between water levels, industry, and economic dispossession. So I've heard stories um, that the dam referenced by Lindsay is connected to the rise of the mining industry. So this is outside of the scope of my research, but I think it's important to flag that Sultana on Lake of the Woods became an island due to flooding. And initially, it was part of what is now known as Rat Portage Indian Reserve. And rising water levels prevented this First Nation from the economic benefit of their mineral resources. So the waters were raised, Sultana became an island, and then gold mines were established there. So this was generating, the Sultana gold mine was generating huge, huge profit uh, for, for settlers. And nothing for the Anishinaabe, uh, you know, of, of whose territory and reserve that was a part before the dam. So Sultana Island has been recently repatriated, but without any environmental remediations. Uh, so this summer I was out on Sultana Island with my family and you can still see those 
open shafts. And, and, and in this way, you know, that the hydro dam is compromising Anishinaabe industries and economic potential. At the same time, it's generating huge revenue for, for Ontario specifically in Canada at large. So, I mean, this is an important point because I think the the hydroelectric dam, I think, captures a lot of attention today. And I, I thought your book did a great job of showing the much longer history here of like industrial and environmental change, uh, disrupting food security um, uh, and access to resources for, uh, for Anishinaabe people in this region. Um, but you also showed the ways that that people adapted, adjusted to the changes and were resilient, which I think is, you know, one of the core themes at the heart of the book. Um, do you think that at least in the period before the the White Dog Falls station is built, um, that the Anishinaabe communities, uh, though though disrupted by the Norman Dam, uh, were were still strong uh, in the period before the 50s? Absolutely. I think that they overcame incredible odds, which, you know, results in my life today and my ability to to speak to you today. Um, I am am so, so grateful that um, my ancestors were survivors and creative thinkers and were able to overcome incredible barriers. And I think that we can see adaptation and, and these survival strategies and lots of really interesting uh, ways in this post-World War II kind of boom before that. So going back to 1890, right, that quotation I read is a, as a chief, a representative of the community actively petitioning federal agents. So people are trying to uphold that nation with nation relationship and saying, listen to me, go back and tell your people that we need to address these issues. We need to uphold and affirm our treaties. Um, There was also some creative thinking and approaches to to harvesting practices. So for example, blueberries weren't as heavily impacted by water fluctuations. And uh, the blueberry industry generated just thousands upon thousands of dollars uh, in the 1910s and the 1920s for the Anishinaabe community. And we also see this increase in banking. In fact, it made headlines in the Kenora district, right? Indians are banking uh, Mm -hmm. was this newspaper article that that came out because as your, you know, your Minoman crops are compromised, your your muskrat and your trappings compromised, you're you're accessing these these different resources, um, generating an income from the land in the best way that you're able, and then taking advantage of these other structures to ensure that your family can survive throughout the winter months. This is purely speculative, um, purely speculative. Haven't spoken to any of my elders on this one, but I've also been thinking about adjacent uh, territories, so off-river territories where trapping may have been possible. So, for example, Rabbit Lake, um, I know that there's some muskrat in that region and it is adjacent to the Winnipeg River. And I don't believe it would get a lot of backwater effects there. Uh, So now I'm talking about the white dog when the white dog, Mm -hmm. for example, were to back that up, Um, which would mean that if you moved a little bit more inland, right, you may be able to harvest some of these animals um, in, in, in different areas. So. 
I think there's also, uh, you know, this possible strategy about where you're moving and what spaces you're accessing to ensure that you're able to continue living off the land, even as it's being compromised. Yeah, I mean, this is a great, well, shouldn't be a revelation, but I think it's a revelation in your book and a strength that shows the degree to which adaptations included both um, adaptations that reinforce self-provisioning um, and autonomy and adaptations that were responses to and engagements with the market economy, um, which I think is a point you make throughout the book that Anishinaabe didn't um, didn't operate separately from the emerging market economy in Ontario, but adapted to it uh, while also maintaining traditional self-provisioning practices as the environment was changing in response to dam construction and water level changes. And, you know, I think that's one of the greatest weaknesses right now when we look at some of the ways that, you know, uh, corporations or or the province or the Canada are looking to deal with First Nations. It's like, OK, we want to provide a one time payment for the loss of this traditional economy. And that's essential. But, you know, the Anishinaabeg for generations have been looking to enter into relationships. So let's talk about benefit sharing agreement. If Ontario power generation is generating profit for shareholders, right? Why aren't Anishinaabe people able to be part of that profit sharing agreement, which would be more sustainable, right? Uh, Potentially more sustainable income at any rate. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about power generation then, because I think there's a bit of a turning point in the narrative in your book uh, when the White Dog Falls Dam is built. Um, So certainly the Norman Dam had environmental effects on the area that changed food security, self-provisioning, and the responses to the market for Anishinaabeg people. Um, But what ways did the White Dog Falls Dam project differ um, from previous damming? And what effects did this have on the lives of Anishinaabe people in the region? So when you are are sitting at Nisetchewan Anishinaabe Nation, uh, also known as Dolls 38C Indian Reserve, you're sitting between three dams. On the upstream side of Nisetchewan Anishinaabe Nation is the Kenora Dam and the Norman Dam. And on the downstream side of Nisetchewan Anishinaabe Nation is White Dog Falls Generating Station. And this creates some unique challenges. If and when the upstream dams open up, Nisetchewan Anishinaabe Nation is prone to flash flooding. Mm-hmm. So you open the gates at the Norman, Nisetchewan Anishinaabe Nation prone to flash flooding. If the downstream gates at White Dog Falls Generating Station are not opened in tandem, the water levels will remain high, right? Um, Now, White Dog Falls Generating Station has a vested interest in keeping the water levels higher as that stretch of river between uh, Kenora and White Dog Falls Generating Station is envisioned by the Hydroelectric Power Commission of Ontario, now Ontario Power Generation, as a reservoir. And energy production depends on the release of water, right, that's stored in the reservoir. So since 1958, that stretch of river between Kenora and White Dog Falls Dam, that stretch of river that uh, was home to my ancestors, is an estimated two meters higher than the natural level. So... To put that in context, to to find a a comparison, the average uh, male in Canada is one meter and 75 centimeters tall, or five feet and nine inches. 
So Ontario Power Generation has raised the water the height of a body, right, on an almost permanent basis. And this has all sorts of, of ripple effects. It can impact the monomen. So the, the seed of a monomen plant, of a wild rice plant, has enough energy kind of built into it to, to germinate. Uh, but as soon as it's germinated, as soon as it's a seedling, it's dependent on the sun's rays to photosynthesize, right? It needs to produce energy in that relationship with the sun. And if the water levels are too high, right, while monomen's a seedling, before it's able to break the surface and enter into uh, what's known as floating leaf stage, it can die. It can die before it breaks the surface if the water levels are too high. Um, on the flip side of this, right, monomen's also extremely vulnerable um, as a mature plant. So as we enter into August, as we prepare to roll into the harvest in September, um, if the water levels are raised then, perhaps to set a, a desirable ice level on Lake of the Woods, right, you're preparing for that ice to freeze, you want a good level on the main lake where the settler, the majority of the settler cottages is, the larger settler villages, you might release some extra water through the Norman Dam and, and drown out a crop that's ready for harvest. And, and that's that's heartbreaking when you listen to, to the elders speaking that moment of looking out over the water and, and seeing a crop that you think is going to feed your family and, and then it's wiped out before you can bring it into your canoe. There's, there's so much pain in those stories. Um, and then on the flip side of that, if it's a really dry year, um, there's not a lot of rain. And so they want to hold some water back on the lakeside. If the monoman plant has grown really strong and that seed head's really heavy, the stalk can break um, and you can also lose the plant that way. So the, the operations of the Norman and the white dog and that sort of relationship between the two can really negatively impact uh, monoman yields. Now in saying this, I want to go back to that theme of resilience and adaptation. I, I want to make clear that the Anishinaabeg have spoken out about effects on monomen for, for generations, right? So we have that record in 1890. There's another complaint in 1959 I've seen in the record. So we have a paper trail of, of this. Um, but also there's evidence of environmental modifications uh, within the landscape itself. So there's one particular monomen field uh, near my ancestral community where um, Anishinaabe men actually tried moving boulders uh, to, to kind of create their own Anishinaabe dam to manage water levels for, for monomen growth. So it was, uh, it was an ineffective solution. It, it didn't work. But you can see there's this testament to, you know, creative thinking and problem solving on the landscape that shows people have always been trying to, to save the monomen. Um, just some other effects. You know, there's uh, it resulted in some mercury contamination, right? So you have waters that were once fast moving and heavily aerated now becoming a slow moving reservoir. But also you have, um, you know, all those plants that would have been along the shoreline that when you raise the water two meters uh, end up decaying right in the riverbed and, and end up that process of decay can release um, methyl mercury uh, into the system, which gets into, you know, the fish and bioaccumulates up the food chain. So the fisheries were closed um, for, for a number of years as a result of this kind of 
relationship between damming, decreased oxygen content, um, and, and organic materials in the river system. Um, and also you have ongoing swamping of reserve lands, right? That continual flooding swamps uh, what might have been otherwise solid ground, which limits the amount of territory you have available to, to build on. So when you think about reserve borders and communities growing as people, you know, fall in love and make children, you know, your your population's growing at the same time as flooding has the potential to, to decrease the amount of land available to the next generation. Yeah, it's it's kind of staggering in reading the book, seeing, I mean, you kind of lay out all the ways in which the disruption to the flow of water in the watershed had all of these either unforeseen or unintended consequences that ultimately seemed to be born largely by Anishinaabe people in the region. Because of course, it's an area where there are both settlers and indigenous people who live there. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, flow, the relationship between the flow of water and the flows of political power uh, in the region, do you see connection there? Who gets to control water's flow? Who gets to benefit from water's flow? What do you see in the history of this territory? I see a direct link between the flow of water and the flow of political power uh, in the settler colonial system. The Anishinaabe knew that newcomers used water differently. And before the settler population had a demographic foothold at the North Shore, compensatory agreements were signed. And there's an example of this on page 25 of the book, which I'm just going to, to turn to now. You might be able to hear these pages flipping as I leaf through it. So here we go. On the 1st of October, 1875, Lake of the Woods District Chief signed for waterfront reserves. The chiefs agreed to the following clause, quote, It is also understood that the government shall have the right to construct canal locks or other public works, should they so desire. In such case, the Indians to be duly notified, and if the fishery should be destroyed thereby, the Indians to be fairly dealt with in consequence, end quote. So 1875, there's mutual agreement that the Indians to be fairly dealt with in consequence, right? So we know that settlers may modify the system, but if that happens, right, we're committed to this treaty where, you know, we have this nation with nation negotiation. We're going to talk and this is all about land sharing and mutual benefit. But as the demographic realities start to change and the number of settlers occupying the territory increases, as that railroad is built and Canada's ability to mobilize increases, the willingness to negotiate with First Nations decreases. So fast forward to the post-war era, the era in which White Dog Falls Generating Station is being built. And we can see that the Hydroelectric Power Commission of Ontario is negotiating with parties who are still uh, protected by the settler state. Parties like the Ontario, Minnesota Pulp and Paper Mill whose operations align with federal priorities for industrial development. And these negotiations are imperfect, but parties like this mill, whose operations are perceived to fuel GDP, the gross domestic product, get more attention. They're more quickly and more readily compensated by the Anishinaabe, who participate in a largely extra, uh, extra market economy. 
And, you know, for this reason, cottagers uh, and the tourist industry were also much better protected by the settler colonial government than the Anishinaabeg during the post-war period. Um, and some might argue even today. So I I just want to unpack this uh, claim in reference to the book yet again. I want to turn to pages 82 and 83. So here we go. Families from Dahl's 38C Indian Reserve made regular use of lands from the reserve to Rough Rock Lake. PEPCO, so that's the Hydroelectric Power Commission of Ontario, required access to some of these lands to build the transmission line. However, it did not want to negotiate with trapping families. In September 1955, it applied for right-of-way along a 22.5-kilometer route from a point on the Canadian National Railway near Manaki to White Dog Falls. The Department of Lands and Forests responded with a license of occupation. The possibility of Anishinaabe exclusion from the licensed area is implicit in the Commission's internal correspondence about how best to exercise its policing permit. HEPCO did not want to prevent Canadian and American cottagers from accessing their seasonal properties. Indeed, the cottage industry generated substantial revenues in the area during the summer. But how could the Commission limit Anishinaabe use of the Winnipeg River and continue to attract revenue-generating cottagers? HEPCO explained that, quote, the road was never intended to exclude the owners or licensees from use as far as their property, end quote. And the key word here is property. Although there was no explicit racial bar, property owners were most often Anglo-Canadian or Anglo-American. HEPCO categorized individuals without ownership papers, like Anishinaabe trappers, as the public, squatters, or undesirables. Owe Johnston, who worked for HEPCO, recommended that the public should not be allowed to use the road except by special permission. The permission process made it difficult for Anishinaabe trappers to qualify for entry because it required all members of the public to have insurance. Under the Indian Act, individual band members could not own land on reserves. And this is because land on reserves is held in trust by the Crown. So all properties held in trust by the Crown and without property, individual band members struggled to register for home and contents insurance. And I think what this passage makes really clear is that the powers that be are working together to limit what was perceived as Anishinaabe interference, right, with the development of hydroelectric power, which was to fuel industry, to combat unemployment. Um, and, you know, for this reason, found these loopholes through which they could continue to protect settler industry um, and, and sort of ignore Right, the the Anishinaabe population, and and literally move power from one group of people to another. I mean, the the book couldn't be a more like striking example of both material power of nature and the flow of water, and political power and how that moves over time. You know, the the, the water levels produce the energy that's required to produce the food. Uh, that sustains the people, right? And that's that's disrupted in this story. It's 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 extraordinary. And I, I I hope listeners pick up a copy and read this. Um, another strength of this book, I think, too, is the sources that you use. So there are uh, textual sources, um, you know, materials we might think of as more traditional sources in historical scholarship, and then of course oral sources uh, here. So 
I wanted to get a sense from you of how you approach these types of sources. What kind of methodologies did you use for thinking about your oral sources and your textual sources in the book? Yeah, so this book in many ways was such a, a, a privilege and a pleasure to work on. I was introduced to many elders from my ancestral community and had this opportunity to make sense of my own family history and, and growing up experience through these conversations. And the one thing that I want to highlight um, as I continue to answer this question is that although I got to interview these elders, there was a fear that Canada and Ontario could appropriate testimony. And so I was asked not to quote extended passages of elder testimony within the book. Um, but this didn't mean that it didn't fundamentally shape the way I approached the archives. So for example, um, the elders spoke a lot about marriages with white dog first nation, for example. Um, and if you're going to visit your family, you might need to use an ice road. And I also uh, was spoken to quite a bit about the, the residential school experience. And so I contacted uh, the, the local diocese for the Anglican Church um, and also Notre Dame Parish and requested permission to look at some of their, their records. And the records from the residential school kept from Notre Dame Parish, for example, showed people from the Dolls marrying people from, you know, White Dog or people from the Dolls marrying people at Shoal Lake. And then all of a sudden, this social geography became an incredibly clear in my mind that isn't explicit in the record. When you're looking at marriages, you're not necessarily thinking about people using ice roads to celebrate, you know, birthdays or feasts or, or what have you together. But the other stories made that incredibly clear. So you're able to build this social and, and, and geographic network. Um, and I think those stories from the elders also gave me a, a lens through which to view the archives of Ontario power generation, because in large part, unless you're looking at a, a band council resolution, for example, the Indigenous presence, the Anishinaabe presence on the territory is really invisible, right? Ontario power generation invisibilized uh, the folks of Anishinaabe Ake. Um, and yet, you know, the elders are talking to you about where they regularly camped, where their trap lines are, where they fished. And these exact same places that are presumed empty you know, are an essential part of, of the seasonal round. And, and so there was this process of um, sort of layering that's happening. So you're looking at a map um, and then you're peopling the map and then you're putting documents on top of that hmm. that don't contain people. And you're able to see these conflicting definitions of, of space and the story sort of emerges from the picture you're able to, to build in your brain. Uh, as a result of these oral testimonies um, and and other records. I love that description of source layering and the order in which you approach it too. Now, I think like you're you're pretty explicit in the introduction um, as well that you I guess you you took a, a very explicit geographic approach to thinking about your sources. And I think you say this in the introduction that the Lake of the Woods region in your analysis is not the periphery. And, you know, let's say Toronto as the capital of the province is not the center of this story, which I think a lot of 
scholarship on histories of hydroelectric development kind of take that geographic relationship hinterlands and heartlands um and here the heartland is the lake of the woods you've kind of kept the the focus on the lake of the woods here and it seemed to me in your reading of sources you did the same so though some of the actors may have written about the region as a as a hinterland you kept it as a heartland in your narrative um is that is that your own like uh, theoretical approach, or is that also informed by the oral sources that you you draw from? I, I think it, I think it's both. I'm writing about my home, so you know, to to have it called the periphery for me has just never made sense, right? Um, I it's where it's where I grew up. It was where I was born, and you know, on my paternal side, it's where my ancestors for generations, as far back as there's living memory, has been born. So we were never newcomers there, mm-hmm. right? There was never a discovery of this territory. You know, I can go out on the river with my dad and he can show me pictographs that are thousands of years old, you know? Um, so there's these markings on the rock that say, we've always been here. We've always been creating here. Um, but, you know, also the elders make it incredibly clear, you know, they're passing on stories saying, you know, this is the way we see development happening, you know, contradicts with our treaty. And, and, and there is something foundational here that we need to recognize. And they're holding those stories as well. And I think the elders are, are, are talking to me and sharing their stories as a form of resistance to, to help me remind others that treaty number three has always been home to somebody. And I think it's evident too, in the way you approach borders in the book. So I mean, you could have taken a borderlands approach to this study because, you know, the Lake of the Woods region sits on a provincial border between Manitoba and Ontario, and it also sits on the international border between Canada and the United States. But you you make the point here in the book is like, it's still, this is a home territory for a people. The borders can come later. They just are carved through existing territory. So I, I don't want to suggest that borders aren't important in your analysis. And certainly there's there's discussion about the uh, International Joint Commission in the book. Um, but I wonder if you can tell us about how you think about borders in the context of this area. I, I do think about that dividing line between Canada and the United States as a, a colonial border, as a creation. I do think that space is, is something that's socially constructed in, in many ways, you know. Um, it's not like the borders that we have, for example, align with the flows of the water, right? So I do think of, of colonial uh, borders as as really artificial. And, and I think that this attempt to divide what's the responsibility of the United States, what's the responsibility of Canada from what's the responsibility of Ontario is really damaging, particularly when you forget the treaty on which all of those borders fundamentally depend. Speaking of borders, I think when we focus on colonial borders instead of treaty responsibilities that we can perpetuate harms. And I think it's worthwhile to quote Chief Dwight Dory of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples in one of the meetings leading up to the historic Kelowna Accord. He asked rhetorically, who among us wants to deny any Aboriginal person in this country the right to decent health care because of jurisdictional protectionism? And I think this phrase, jurisdictional protectionism, is really important for us to maybe unpack and think about for a moment. 
I believe the division of powers, the reference to the British North America Act of 1867 has been used by colonial governments like Canada, like Ontario, to shirk responsibilities for damages to the Anishinaabe Nation when the cost of remediation is high. And I don't think that this is unique to Anishinaabe Aki. For example, in Constance Backhouse's coverage of RE Eskimos 1939 in Color Coded, we can see that Canada and Quebec debated whether or not the Inuit were status Indians to determine whether Canada was responsible for welfare payments during the Great Depression. And this legal question, this jurisdiction question, stalled action and people suffered. So the thing is, First Nations entered into treaties with Canada, but they never ratified the British North America Act or the subsequent Indian Act. Neither colonial law has been validated by the nations they claim to govern. And both Ontario and Canada have failed to uphold Treaty Number 3. And both, I would argue, have a legal obligation to come to the table, right, to negotiate under treaty. Furthermore, historically, both Canada and Ontario cooperated to ensure dam development. And you can see this in passages throughout the book, cooperation between Canada and Ontario. And I think that the limited protection offered by colonial governments and the profit potential of Indigenous displacement wasn't as no secret. So over 50 years ago, right, going back to the 1960s, Buffy St. Marie sang out in reference to the United States specifically, quote, the eagles of war whose wings lent you glory. They were never no more than carrion crows, pushed some wrens from their nests, stole their eggs, changed their story. And if we stick to our history, right, both parties, both Canada and Ontario have dirt on their hands. And under treaty as newcomers, both Ontario and Canada have a responsibility to come clean. And it's primarily under colonial law that that distinction between Canada and Ontario matters. That colonial law, the British North America Act, that's where this jurisdictional distinction matters. And it's through the colonial justice system that these distinctions have been used to delay reparations. I wondered if you could tell us um, about whether or not there have been any initiatives to mitigate the water pollution uh, since uh, OPG's apology in 2008. Um, is there any hope that if the White Dog Falls generating station isn't going to be abandoned anytime soon, is, is the restoration of Lake of the Woods and the watershed to a kind of natural state or a more healthful state uh, for the Anishinaabe a possibility? I, I look at multiple factors, right? And I, I look at it from an inherent rights jurisdiction and laws perspective in terms of the work that we're doing. You know, a lot of what we're doing doesn't involve um, um, like ministries and all that kind of, you know, every everybody else. We're operating from a point that, you know, we need to do what we need to do in order to protect you know, the resources, also the, you know, it's a livelihood, right? And we got to do everything in partnership with those who are willing to help uh, make that system a heck of a lot healthier. But also, you know, certain things, right, when, when the, the mill closed down and coming through some type of resolution that we had with OPG had allowed us to, had allowed the water 
and those systems to just kind of start healing themselves, right? And the and sad part of it is the pollution piece of it has just kind of washed away and it's made its way through the river system, right, without um, going through these structures at the same time. So I look at all the other initiatives, right, there's always hope that we'll eventually return to some sort of natural state. And what we've had to do is kind of negotiate that through other grievances. Hmm. And I don't want to get too political here, but just to say that we're under the pro- in the process of finalizing certain agreements between the community, Ontario, and the feds, in terms of how we're going to regulate water levels, what are they going to be the impacts, and you know what I mean? Future, future down the road. So those relationships are are well underway, and we're always going to be hopeful um, because we're doing everything in our power and within our you know our what we believe is just what we need to do as protectors, right? Um, and that's with regards to what we're doing with our monoman. What, what we're doing with our, our sturges. Um, and it, these are beautiful projects that we're working on collaboratively right across the board. So all of our efforts are always in keeping in mind and working within our treaties, within governments, working with our, our, our people, our students, our elders, and sharing that vision, sharing those efforts, but learning off each other, learning from each other, and making, working collaboratively going forward. And a big part of that is also working with, you know, the powers that be, and I'm speaking, you know, specifically with the International Joint Commission, right? It's more about what we're doing on that level in asserting our jurisdiction over self-determination and um, things like, you know, making an impact at that level between um, between countries and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're going to do our thing and we're going to do our best to, to take care of our systems because that's our responsibility. It's a sacred responsibility and we take that very seriously. And I think you got at this with your answer a little bit, but, you know, environmental or ecological revitalization is, is just one part. I think of of the activities uh, that are going on uh, in your community, and I and I know I know you've spoken about this before, but I wondered if 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 the two of you might be able to elaborate a little bit on a, any kind of community initiatives around reviving teachings about food sustainability and traditional foods. Oh my word! That that just happens all the time, right? Our people are out fishing. Our um, walleye uh, population is now to a, a very healthy point of where we can consume a heck of a lot more than what we were what we were doing in the past. Our wild rice um, harvest is something that we get maybe not every year but every so often and we're able to produce that and, and do what we need to do and distribute within the community. Um, of course, we're, we're harvesting what we can off the land, um, and we do everything we can to, to make sure that um, um, these resources are here for our community. And I'll, I'll give you an example in, in the context of COVID, right? 
Um, and this this is a real relevant thing. And and we use it because our mindset is that um, our mindset is that you know when we were all freaking out and everybody was going to the stores and taking everything off the shelf and you name it, right? We looked at it like we got to be kind of be doing that same thing because we always have the ability, the land, the resources to be able to provide for ourselves worst case scenario, right? So we were out sending our people into um, the stores, grabbing this, grabbing that. And they're like, why are you doing that? Like, well, because you're not going to go get macaroni in the bush. (laughs) You're not going to go get flour in the bush. But what's in my backyard is everything that I could get, worst case scenario, if we need it. So we flip that and make that the foundation, right? So if that gives a little bit of perspective to um, some of the initiatives, but our teachings, our our way of um, living, you know, even though we live in, in modern day and we've adapted along the way, our culture, our traditions, our beliefs, our ceremonies are very alive and well in the territory. And these are things that we just don't even think about or, or second guess or think, you know, it's just natural. It's natural. Spring's coming. We know what needs to do. We need to prepare. This is what we got to do. You know, in, in, in the fall, we know what ceremonies have to have to be done in order to protect this, prepare for that. It's, it's just a way of life. And it's not so, you know, back in the day when we were forced or people were forced to hide what they were doing, you know, it's not like that anymore. We just do it. It's, it's au natural to us. And we are very open to sharing that with people who want to participate. And it's, it's not, um, everything that we do in terms of all the initiatives that, that we are involved in, the fundamental foundational um, activities that we undertake are always from, from our perspective. And just to jump in there, Chief, I'm thinking about some of the calls from the elders for the Minoman Project to, to build those partnerships with the uh, school boards in the Kenora District. So we're starting those conversations with the Kenora Catholic District School Board to ensure that Treaty Number no. 3 youth have an opportunity to participate in the Monoman Harvest. So the Canadian school system aligns more closely with the harvesting cycles for wheat, right? So you pull in your wheat and then your kids go back to school. But Monoman is harvested sort of between mid-August and, and mid-September, depending on the weather and, and when the crop's ripening. And what this means is that after the closure of residential schools, that families who wanted to introduce their kids to the harvest might have had to try and limit it to weekends or, you know, pull their kids out of school. And that whole language of pulling kids out of school doesn't really reflect that Monoman fields are teaching spaces. And there is just so much knowledge about there out there about Anishinaabe ecology and, and child rearing and seven generations thinking. So Anishinaabe philosophy that you're learning in these spaces. spaces. So we're trying to create these partnerships in addition to all the ceremony that's that's maintained and happening on reserve to make sure that kids who are being educated in the Western system 
are also having an opportunity to access those those teachings uh, as well. So I think also looking to to new relationships to be part of to be part of a celebration of culture. Now I want to make sure there's an opportunity to talk about some of your new research. Um, I know you're working on a project on uh, Manoman. Can you share anything about the the new work that you're doing? I love the Manoman project. It's just such a, a nourishing project for me, culturally, intellectually. It's yeah, it's my favorite. Uh, you can check us out on at Manoman Project on Instagram. Uh, we have uh, an undergraduate research assistant just doing an incredible job of maintaining that page for us. So the Manoman Project is a crop restoration initiative. And we're working in partnership with Nisetuan Anishinaabe Nation to try and make sense of what's happening to Manoman yields on the river. And the elders hypothesize that the declines we're seeing are a direct response to the operations of White Dog Falls Generating Station and want to know if there's a way for us to better manage flow patterns to, to perhaps have a more sustainable yield over the long run. Um, but you know, the arrival of settler colonists has also posed some other really unique challenges, not just flow patterns, but there's um, something called invasive hybrid cattail. It's an invasive species that competes with monomen for territory. And the the cattails, um, they they don't die and have to grow from seed every year. And so they, they these root mats grow out. And if monomen seeds are sort of underneath those root mats, it's not like they can push up because, as I said, they need that access to sunlight, right, to, to survive after germination. So this invasive species is kind of taking over Manoman territory and making it difficult to grow. So we're also, you know, trying to figure out, OK, what do we do about this invasive hybrid cattail um, that, you know, is is part of that story of settler colonialism and, and the bringing over of European uh, crops? Um, so. And, and it's, I want to say that it's multidisciplinary. So we're working with the School of Engineering at the University of Guelph. And Dr. Andrea Bradford is doing water samples and, and sediment samples and trying to help us understand those elements that may be impacting monoman growth that may have an impact on crop restoration efforts that aren't visible to the human eye. And then we're working with elders and gathering testimony in an attempt to understand what are the absolute best growing conditions for monomen? And what, what can we do as human beings to sustain that crop? What ecological knowledge do we have? What plant knowledge, what seed knowledge do we have that can be instrumental in these restoration initiatives? Well, it's a really exciting new project. And I love the interdisciplinarity across engineering and humanities um, with that project. And of course, a lot of it builds off of the stories that are contained in your book, um, damned the politics of loss and survival in Anishinaabe territory uh, from University of Manitoba Press. I encourage listeners to uh, get a copy today uh, and read it. I think there's a lot in there for folks who are interested in environmental history, but understanding the ways in which in, in the Canadian context, how settler colonialism shapes environmental change um, and um, and the ways in which power and nature intersect uh, in stories of the past. So I want to thank both of you for joining us here. Thank you.
I just want to say miigwech to everybody who's involved and, and to everybody who's, who wants to listen and be part of, you know, um, Brittany's initiative with, with um, the book and learning about our experiences and being willing to be open to sharing the information that's provided and acknowledging, you know, the history, but also being so hopeful in terms of the relationships that we need to really forge and, and educate our people on moving forward because we're all in this together. I think we're finding what's, what's happening globally and that when we have that respect, that acknowledgement and that willingness to learn from each other, there's always so much hope for our kids, right? It's not just about us where we've done it but for our kids and creating a better future for, for everybody. And um, a lot of that is just not being afraid of each other, learning from each other. And hey man, if we got issues, we got to be able to be honest and talk about it too. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Brittany Luby, Chief Lorraine Kobanes, Wendy Bim, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past.